You're listening to the Mobcast Network. Welcome to Between the Line, a filmmaking podcast that navigates the line between professional and fandom, distribution and sales, success, and I'm your host, Drew Hall. Horst Sarubin is missing in action, and Chris Lott was somewhere. We could now call him Double Dip, by the way. So if you ever hear us refer to him as Double Dip, long story, I'm sure we'll cover it. So on this episode, we have a wonderful interview with uh, Daisy Hamilton, who is uh, chief of acquisitions uh, for a company called Tricoast Worldwide. She's also a uh, filmmaker, a very intelligent uh, woman, a wonderful person to debate film with if you're so inclined to engage in that kind of uh, uh, challenge, so to speak. So anyway, we have Daisy on the show. So real quick, we want to thank our sponsors, uh, slackjobpunks.com, obviously. Uh, We want to thank Fosco Coffee Bar that supplies uh, us with plenty of free coffee. If you ever have a chance to check them out, you can head on over to foscocoffeebar.com or you can hit them up at their Pensacola location. Rumor is they're going to have some food soon. We'll see how that goes. Uh, We also want to uh, thank screenplayreaders.com where you can get 10% off your purchase by typing in the promo code between the line. That's 10% off. Pretty good deal. Uh, Again, coverage is coverage. Daisy will talk a little bit about that to a degree. Uh, you always want to make sure you send a nicely prepared script when you are peddling your picture for money. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I just wanted to give another plug to Ritter Battery. I used them this weekend on a shoot, and I'm still just floored at how, how good they've done uh, as far as repairing my batteries. All the cells were gone. They resell them, uh, and they're fantastic. Uh, they're not technically a sponsor, but I love them. Obviously, we want to plug Detroit Beard Collective, um, which... Again, their product, awesome. Uh, great bunch of guys. They're fun to listen to. Every once in a while, they'll pop onto one of the Slack Job Punks podcasts. If you have a chance, uh, uh, listen out for those guys. They they're make a great product, and they care about what they're doing, and that's always a plus. So without further ado, I'm just going to go ahead and jump on in. It's a little bit of a long interview, but here is Daisy Hamilton from Tried Coast Worldwide. Okay, so uh, Daisy, welcome to the show. Hello. How you doing, Drew? I'm delightful, as always. Um, it's good to hear your voice. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. All right. So I, you know, I always, uh, I kind of ramble in circles. We know that about me and, and, uh, <laughs> and you've, and you and I have had a working relationship in the past. So just kind of getting into it. Could you give me kind of a brief overview? You don't have to touch. I know, I know you do a lot of stuff, but can you kind of give me an overview of your day to day, what your day to day might be just kind of to help set the stage? Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, I I handle acquisitions for Tricoast Worldwide, um, and I also do business development. So if I'm not at a festival or a market, I am reading scripts, I am watching movies, I am looking for for uh, movies going into production, looking at at you know directors that I'm fond of, what they're making, um, writers, great writers. So I'm I'm seeking out gems, so to speak, um, and then I'm I'm doing a lot of viewing. Um, yeah. So you so sort of well. Go ahead. Go ahead. One uh, sorry. One thing I left out. So when I see a, a film that I like, then I go after it. So then I'm I'm building a strategy. I'm generating estimates um, on the film for its for its world sales. Um, I'm generating deal points. Um, so that's for films that I'm looking to acquire for world sales. If I'm, if I'm looking to acquire a film for a domestic distribution, um, then I am basically crafting a proposal, figuring out 
how much money we should spend, you know, what is the worst case scenario of, uh, because, you know, that's, that's sort of a smarter way to plan for than um, assuming we'll, we'll acquire a film and make a lot of money off it. Um, because if we don't, then, then we've lost money on the purchase of it. So, so I'm having to, to make those, um, you know, sort of draw uh, certain conclusions and analyze films and the marketplace and, and sort of predicting how how we might go about marketing something, whether it's theatrical, whether it's uh, VOD or TV. So yeah, that's that's sort of what I'm doing. So kind so, of broad, I know. No, no, <laughs> no, it's good. But I mean, so obviously you interact with a variety of uh, levels of producers, and I assume even independent uh, filmmakers in general, maybe just director producers and and whatnot. I mean, do you does it ever? Do you ever find yourself on a spot where you you know you know you see the potential, but it just you you know it's not going to do something, and you, and you kind of have to like, do you find yourself in that in that tough spot? Uh, I yeah. do, and it's so painful because okay, there are a few ways that this happens. Sometimes I'll see, um, and I I consider myself a bit of a, a cine snob, but unfortunately, um, <laughs> movies that I love uh, aren't always profitable. Um, so I'll see a film, and and I'll. Uh, maybe it's art house and I just think that it's fantastic and it's so unique and it has such a unique uh, take on society or humans or it really just uh, struck me or it spoke to my psyche. But I'll also recognize that the producers maybe spent $4 million on it and it's not uh, a film that can be released theatrically because it doesn't have any cast in it. Um, or, or for whatever reason, um, I, I don't think that it would be possible to get a, a wide or a, even a limited theatrical release. Then I'm looking at a $4 million film that can't possibly make its money back um, in in the marketplace at, at this time because you won't make that money back from TV sales. Or, you know, it, it, it doesn't have the potential to play on TV because to get a sort of... Uh, premiere TV release, it's a very specific type of movie. So for those sort of unique, independent art house types, they don't really have their place on first run TV. Um, I mean, there used to be Sundance Channel and IFC, but IFC has sort of become um, more based around uh, genre films. So so then it falls into this sort of gray area of it's a fantastic film that I, I absolutely don't see any revenue stream for, which is it's really sad. It's very hard to watch or or I'll see a film that um, is really good. The story is fantastic, but it it just falls short of, of where it needs to be um, and and to sort of bump it up to to a more um, marketable or commercial place. Uh, would be difficult to do. So, so I, I see that that all the time. Um, or, or I'll see a film that I love, but there's one lead actor that is just horrible, and really every time they're on on screen, they take you out of it, um, and they remind you that you're watching a film, and that can be really painful because it it sort of um, does a dis- disjustice uh, or it really hurts the film overall. Well, that's hard because you can you can sort of blame the actor or or you have to look at at the director um not being able to recognize that on set and sort of compensate for that and and um so it it surprises me when that happens. Um it also surprises me that some films get made. You know, it makes me it makes me really sad um when I see a, a 5 million dollar film get made and there's no cast in it and I I just wonder how did anyone 
let this happen in, in a market that's unfortunately so driven by cast these days, which I, I wish weren't the case because there's some really great films out there. Um, but, but it's just a, it's a hard reality of, of this market. Um, so to make a film at that budget and not have cast just, it really, it really shocks me. No, I totally get, I mean, it's, it's the same thing. Um, you know, we, we've talked about it on the, on the podcast some is that one of the, the great challenges that you come to the realization of, uh, and which this will lead to a question, which is that, you know, you, you do find you have this sort of art versus commerce that exists and that you often as the writer, director or producer, whoever it, it may be, you have to consider the notion that that cast sells movies. Um, it doesn't matter how great your crew is, no matter how much you love them and they've done everything and given everything. Sometimes you get lucky. You know, you you, you make a Blair Witch, uh, you, you go down that path. But the majority of, of cases um, profitable films are those that have, you know, a strong cast in them and kind of put that piece together. So I, I just wanted to kind of reinforce and maybe get your thoughts on, do you think that because you're on the front lines of this, you're, you're either the beginning of the production process or post, uh, post-production, mm-hmm. is this, is there a real discrepancy in this art versus commerce sort of mentality that that's unfolding? Uh, what do you mean by discrepancy? Well, I mean, so for example, I, I met a gentleman the other day that was, um, I had a conversation with a guy that was a former executive for a pretty big studio. And one of the things that he was bringing up was, look, you can either, we were talking about writing, and he was like, you can either write um, art-driven pieces that maybe are non-narrative and follow this certain direction, or you can write for what is going to sell that follows a sort of uh, a beat sheet, knowing that you've written for a certain actor in mind or a level of actor in mind. Do you find that to be the case? Like, is there a difference between like the art house film? What's the, what's the chances of seeing an art house film be successful versus that of like, uh, you know, a slightly more commercial film with, with bigger names in it is kind of where I'm coming from. Well, I think that there's, um, there's less risk in the, the safer films when you have actors. Um, because even if it's bad, we've all seen those studio films that have the right actors and they seem to just sort of, make their money back, or at least definitely in, in ancillaries, like home entertainment, DVD, VOD, all of that, um, even though it's a bad film. If you do the same with an art film and it's bad, you're not going to make a dollar back. It, 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 you might not even get distribution at all anywhere or even sales. If it's, so it's, it's way higher risk, but there are art films that, um, that can do well and pop. Um, so the, the sort of, the way that, that that works is it's a true festival route thing. So my favorite film of all time is, uh, one of them at, at least, is um, a film called Festin, or um, the English title was Celebration. It was uh, Vinterberg. But it's so fantastic. But you have these festivals that are tastemakers. So even just getting accepted to a festival changes everything. Um, you're suddenly not pushing that that uh, snowball up the hill. It's... it's um, quickly accelerating down, so to speak, because just to get into one of those festivals, you get a stamp of approval on in the in the world of um, art house or highbrow that that is sort of the most important stamp of approval to be had. So once, you know, if you make that art film, it's a lot harder to do uh, and you need to just be really good. What I would say is if somebody is looking to be that artistic type of director or, or producer or writer, 
start with things that are less risky and because you need to get yourself into a position where this is what you're doing on a daily basis. This is how you're making money. It's not that you have a nine to five and you're writing scripts after work because then it's just a different lifestyle. But if you can get, uh, get yourself into a position where you're employed by cinema, um, then you start making things that have the commercial appeal. And then, then you're in a position where you can make more artistic things because people will read your scripts uh, because you've you've made films, um, you've written them or you've directed them that have that have gotten distribution. Um, you know, like in the case with um, with you and I, I love your work and I'm so excited to, to read anything that you send me or to to try to see what we can do together. So you could send me whatever and I would give it. I would definitely read it because of, of the, the relationship we have. Whereas if you uh, if I didn't know you and you said, here's this really artistic film, how do I know, uh, you know, what is what's the trust factor there um, to, to basically what I'm saying is to be able to pull off an artistic film, you need to make a name for yourself in the artistic arena uh, first. And and so maybe you don't want to do that with feature films. Do it with a short. Get a short that goes to Sundance. Then people will take you seriously. So it's just about about getting the chops, I believe. No, no, and that's it's 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 great to hear because it's the exact same thing that uh, this this gentleman was mentioning to me was the exact process of if you want to do art house, uh, prove yourself first and, you know, make your commercial yeah. pictures and go backwards kind of thing. Exactly. So in doing that though, let me jump back and use that as a, as a bizarre segue to say kind of, can you give me a history of where you came from? Because you, you didn't you graduate from NYU? Is that correct? I did. I did. So let's go back in um, time a bit and revisit uh, just a couple of years and let's just revisit the, you know, your history. Do you mind talking about it? Yeah, not at all. So I, I have grown up in the film industry. Um, my parents started their company 30 years ago, and so I've just always worked for them, you know, every summer in high school. Um, and then when I went to NYU, I initially thought that I wanted to be an actress. Um, so I, I was at Tisch. Um, and then my first summer, I went to Cannes with them, and it was sort of like, yeah, I'll intern at, at the at the festival market, um, but maybe it'll be a vacation. Who really knows? And I, I went in my first day, and I just loved it. Everyone was speaking this foreign language of the business of film, and I knew it because it's all I had um, at you know the dinner table all my life. Um, so, so I, I really left that summer thinking, okay, this is what I want to do. It's not acting. I'm definitely more of a, I want to get my hands involved way more in the making and the selling. And, and I, I loved so much the, the foreign aspect. Um, I love having partners that we work with around the world and, and seeing what films can travel across seas and, and what films don't. Um, and, and just having that sort of international, uh, aspect to my life, um, that, that I found that I, I really, really liked and I thrived in. So, uh, I, I sort of switched gears at NYU and, and started and, you know, getting more into producing and taking a lot of business classes through Stern because I, I realized I wanted to get, um, more in the, into the business of things. Um, that, that's just where, where my particular, uh, bent was. Um, but I, I've always taken film classes and I'm, I'm definitely, uh, a film, a film buff, so to speak, but it's, it's important in, in my line of work to understand, uh, understand the, the financial component to it, because that's what, that's what keeps the lights on. That's what, um, you know, if you can't make your money back, then you can't keep making films and that's hard. But 
I, I actually, and I, I don't mean to go on a diatribe, but um, <laughs> I will. <laughs> I, I have pretty strong feelings about cinema and about film and about its function. I mean, knowing that the number one major across the nation is filmmaking and, and we have to outsource um, jobs like computer engineers, it makes me a little bit sad. I mean, everybody feels that they have a story to tell. That's fantastic. What I think is incredibly important is the stories that uh, the world needs to hear. That, to me, takes precedence over what stories an individual personally wants to tell. If there's a marriage between the two, that's that's sort of when gold can happen, you know, when, when somebody has the story they need to get out and it, it happens to also be the story that the world needs or wants to hear, that's important. Then, then they're making a film that, that serves a function. Um, I kind of, I, I think that it's... Um, can be a little bit of cinematic masturbation when, when somebody is just making a film because they want to get art off their chest. Now, I've had d debates with people, and I can absolutely see the other side, but I, I do believe that um, it's very important for a filmmaker to take into consideration his audience. I mean, I consider a director to be like a shaman, truly. Like, you, you're you going to see a film, you're going into this place of, uh, of liminality where you're neither here nor there, the lights go down, and you're suspending your sense of, of belief. And whether it be through humor, through fear, through, uh, you know, suspense, what, whatever um, tool is used is fine, but you should leave that, that film... Um, having some sense of internal growth. Uh, your psyche should go through some kind of journey, and that's the director's job as as the shaman to take you on that journey. Uh, and, and I think that sometimes filmmakers are are not remembering that they have an audience that they're serving. And I don't say that, I, I don't mean by that that you should sell out and make a film for audiences because, I mean, we've all seen studio films <laughs> go that route right. and, and they don't tend to, to, um, to really affect you or make it a lasting impact. I think that's actually the, the, the point of independent film is that we are tasked, um, far more with the, um, the role of, of creating cinema that is meaningful and not, not really just about escapism or, or, you know, you can just kind of numb out, or you go and you have a 3D experience and it blows your mind. It's almost like going on a roller coaster. That's that's the majors. You know, that's not independent. Independent cinema is what really makes you think. It's Criterion Collection. It's it's um, you know films that change your your entire perspective on yourself or life or, or things like that. Um, and I, every director that I have seen um, do that is making a film that not only uh, serves herself himself internally but but also is you know they they really um take into account their audience and and they're doing you know they're serving their audience just as much as they're they're serving themselves so yeah that's my that's my feeling on on um <laughs> the sort of the mix between what you want to say and what needs to be said and you know, um, making art be that you love and making art that, that audiences love as well. But that, but that's the thing that is so fascinating to me is, is, um, from an indie perspective, uh, being more or less an, an independent, you know, filmmaker now five in for me is, has mm -hmm. been looking at this idea of, okay, so I don't want to right now, the trend that I've observed in, in, in a lot of indie cinema is mimicking. And, and I'm in total agreement with you is, is that there's there's a time and place for mimicking other works, but if we're just making the same you know uh, story with new characters over and over and over again, 
aren't, aren't we kind of we're devaluing the actual work of not just the directors or the cast. We're actually devaluing the work of the entire business because pretty soon there is no, no more innovation. So, so many of these indie films, so many like independent pictures that have come out have been, you know, they've changed the, the landscape in which uh, f- further films were, were produced. They, they've shifted that around. So how, what's the approach on that level? Because one of the challenges I find is, you know, from a cost standpoint, let's say you write a script and it, it comes down to the script itself, in my opinion, but you, you pen a script and the script comes in at like, you know, you're estimating, they bring it to you and you estimate, okay, I look at it and it says uh, $3 million to make this movie. But the reality of it is it's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's going to be a hard sell piece, but the story is good enough that you think it would resonate with a cast member. I mean, how do you approach that? Do you give advice on, tr- we got to trim the budget down and shoot it for less? Or how, how do you go about dealing with those kind of circumstances? Okay. So, well, there are several uh, things I'll unpack there. So first, just to go back to the um, the mimicry, totally agree. What, what sometimes um, films that fall flat on their face in the independent world are those that are trying to, to in some way compete with the studios. And it's like, whoa, why? Why even try to do that? You're not going to win. Just back off and, and sort of, Instead, embrace the independent side of it because that is an arena that you can excel in. But for a $2 million film to try to um, position itself as a $10 or $20 million film these days, which is sort of the average for, for a studio, it's just not going to happen. It's not. So they're, they really shouldn't be trying to mimic studio films or mimic each other. Um, but I mean, another aspect to that that I think is really interesting is if you look at the ancient Greeks um, and you look at, at their comedies and their dramas, they actually they they didn't um, have any illusions about it. They used the same exact characters and names and the same story but each writer would give a different take on it. So there are nine different versions of Medea and you know I happen to like Euripides because it's more feminist but Sophocles he was total misogynist. So I think there's something cool about that when you if you're going to go as far to mimic I I would just use actually the same exact characters, the same storyline, but give a new take on it. At least that's something authentic. Um, but it, it's pretty offensive as a as a an audience member um, and somebody that you know watches films for a living to to watch something that's just a total copy of something else. I mean, it's it's an absolute waste of my my time um, and everyone's time. And it's I mean, as a consumer, I'm insulted when I pay money and and I'm asked to sit through something that you know, that I've already paid for a week before, you know? Um, and then I get mad at the distributor for, for somehow tricking me in the marketing side of it. <laughs> but in terms of what you're saying about when you, when you're budgeting out a film and it comes in at 2 million and it's, it's a more unique film, but you know, maybe if you cast it correctly, I think there are two ways to go about that. There is a bit of a scary, um, area where, Right now, you're 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 finding um, films that uh, used to be made for eight million, but are now getting made for five million and being sold at the eight million dollar level, so that you have a profit. Because it's really important to recognize that around the world, um, different countries are sort of imploding um, because of the emergence of VOD, because of pirating, because DVD is dead. There's a lot of shifting going going on right now in the international marketplace. Um, so in order to adapt to that budgets have had to go down there are 
definitely less films being made in the independent world a year and less studio films being made, which means there are more actors available, which means you can get them at, at a lower price. I mean, if an actor didn't book a studio film, um, then he'll want, he, he has a big mortgage to pay. She has a big, you know, car, a lot, lots of cars, lots of, you know, payments. So the likelihood of them jumping into an indie film is, is, is pretty high. Um, and, I've seen a lot of actors, if they like the script, they'll definitely, definitely sign on at a, at a lower price. Maybe you give them back-end points because truly them signing on is what might allow your film to get made. Because if it's the right actor and it's at the 2 to $3 million level or, or really 3 to $5 million level, you can then um, pre-sell the film based upon the cast. Now, obviously, pre-sales do not work with first-time directors ever at all. Unless, um, in, unless you have made a short that went to Sundance and you have all these A-list celebrities in it, then maybe, maybe we can pre-sell your film. But it, it's just, it won't happen with a first-time director. And understandably, why, why would a German uh, distributor pay a million dollars when he has absolutely no idea what, what the end result will be? You know, if you were to pre-buy a film that Sofia Coppola is directing, you know what kind of film you're going to get, and you absolutely want to get that film before, before it's finished because then you're competing with every other German distributor. So when you know the director, when you know their taste, when you know what the end product will be, when you know that they'll make a film and deliver it and it'll be a film that that um, will be commercially viable, will be theatrical. Pre-sales also only happen on, on the theatrical level. There's no point in pre-buying a, a film that's set for home video or VOD. So that's a very specific route um, and, and the packaging of it is very specific. Um, but when I look at it, um, I think, okay, is this a $2 million film that can actually be made for 800000 Because if so, let's do it that way because then the the likelihood of, of getting into profit and, and getting into profit in a relatively good time frame is a lot higher. So what we're seeing now is that with the $2 million films that were just $2 million films and have an, a, an okay cast, it's just, it's taking longer to make... Um, to make money back in sales because the money is not coming in from upfront advances. It's coming in from those, those upfront advances that you normally used to get from around the world and would get you your, your budget back. They've all been chopped in half. So we're now having to wait for the film to actually go out in the UK and make money in the UK market. And then the profits come in, um, as opposed to what it was like five years ago where, you could make profit for the producers just from advances from around the world. What, what, so that's, oh, sorry, yeah, go on. No, it, it just brings up an interesting, uh, uh, two notes on that. One, uh, you touched on it, and I'll, I want you to come back if I'm throwing you off, just slap me. But No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> one of them is, uh, obviously, you, you touched on the style, because then the, the, the style of a director or filmmaker or whatever, producer, um, th does that make it easier? So if you kind of have a, you know, pa past your first film, you've proven that you can deliver a product, but is it also that, you know, like you mentioned Sofia Coppola, when you said it, I saw exactly in my head, I saw Virgin Suicides and I knew exactly yeah. the look that she has. Does that also help you on the sales side is kind of having that um, that style? And in doing that, would you suggest that 
somewhat that short films making these short films would help a director find a style so that the one day they do a feature he or she has the ability to have their style already just translated onto a longer format does that make sense oh yeah yeah i mean think about it any director that that is um a celebrity in his own right like any director that you think of off the top of your head they have a style and so you're remembering them in their name because they have a style like you know aronofsky coppola all all of the a lot of the great directors right now um, have a style. I think that's so important for younger and emerging filmmakers to take the opportunity of making shorts to develop their style and to prove that they can tell a story um, and, and that that story is a, an enjoyable one or a good one or an interesting one. But it's really a, a platform to generate and um, specify style. So the more style that you have, um, the easier it'll be, I think, because then when you're even, if you're going to be hired as a director, if you don't have a style, it's hard to sort of get, get hired to direct a film because, you know, you don't really know what, what this will exactly look like at the end of the day. But if you have a style, then the likelihood of you being hired as a director um, is, is also a lot higher. Um, yeah, sorry, go on. In terms of the whole, um, if you've directed a film, if you've directed five films and none of them have gone theatrical, unfortunately, it's, it's, not, it's not the same thing. If you've unless one of them has, has massively made profit on VOD or home video. Um, if you've made a film, and even if it didn't make profit, if it's gone theatrical, that is very helpful then um, for pre-sales. That's the one note I'll add. No, but which, is a, which is an interesting one to be in because um, pre-convergence I had done, uh, I, I'm using myself as, as the person we can punch. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I had done three films. They were all Merc work, meaning... I got hired to direct the piece, um, someone else's script, and then you know, then they finally let me um, do my own project with Convergence, which I'd argue is is maybe in between. It's on the cusp of art house and 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 traditional narrative. It does require an audience to actually pay attention, which is what I feel like all audiences should do. But right, but you did something so well. I don't want to cut you off, so go on. No, 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 that's fine. You could praise me. Go ahead. You can cut me off to. Uh, well, I was going to say you did something so smart because you actually. Um, housed an interesting and intelligent film in a commercial genre. So you took the genre of a supernatural thriller and you made a film that made you think. And that's like awesome. That's that's what directors need to be doing. If they want to make people think, do it. But it doesn't mean you have to make this very avant-garde um, film that's hard to 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 identify with or to get into because it is really hard to market an avant-garde film. It's incredibly hard, but, but, uh, you were able to really strike a balance there and keep and stick to your guns and make an, an art, a film that had such artistic value, uh, while also making a film that you knew had an audience. And that to me is the most important thing. Uh, investors do not invest a dime in a film. If there's not an audience directors don't, Go out to seek investment if if your film doesn't have an audience. I I think that 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 is the, the most horrible thing. I, I almost think it's criminal to take money. It's 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 so unfair to everybody involved in a film when people set out to make a film and an audience hasn't been defined. Because it's like it's like making it's like an artist and they make um an an awesome beautiful art piece. The difference between if it hangs in their house or if it hangs in a museum is, is distribution. And 
a distributor, their entire job is to figure out who the audience is. So if there's not an audience, a film, why put any money behind it? Why put it into a theater? Why put it online? Why put it, why do anything with it? Um, so I, I, I think the most important thing is to define the audience from the outset. And if the audience is just you, you know, don't, you know, <laughs> make a short film for yourself. I, it's, I mean, I, I like to pastel and that's art I do for me. But I don't I don't trick myself into thinking that other people should invest money into me making this pastel. Like it's I'm I'm very aware that that's art I do. Um but it's not because at the end of I, I mean I always get back to this but I don't think a director is is making a film for himself. I think he's making or for herself. I think she's making a film for audiences. Now, that said, if you if you have proven yourself to be a director, then then you can get more experimental. But I, I still think that those directors, um, they, they are like shamans, and they'll never forget about their audiences. That's why we love them. We can trust ourselves going into a theater um, and, and giving away, you know, we suspend our disbelief when we trust a director, which, you know, we sometimes don't even know who the director is before we go and see it. But um, with, um, with directors like Aronofsky, which I actually... I have it, if I may tell a story about Aronofsky. Yes, please. Um, it, it made me, his films made me really define my views on a director. So I saw Pi, and while I loved it, um, it, any scene where he was in the bathroom hurting his brain, it really hurt my consciousness to watch that. I, I It pained me. Like, I, I didn't like that. Uh, and then I, I obviously... Um, saw Requiem and, um, was like, okay, there's some mother issues here. And was a little disturbed by it, but I, you know, it's a great film. And, and then I saw Black Swan and I was incredibly disturbed by it, like really disturbed. Like it really got under my skin and I didn't like it. And I was massively disturbed and it made me really mad. It made me realize that Aronofsky is, um, such a powerful director. Does he know the effect that he's having on, on, uh, the audience is, you know, on a viewer's psyche. And is he taking that seriously? Is he really, um, because he's so powerful, he has an obligation to, to really, uh, put thought and feeling and, and sensitivity into the, the ride he's taking the viewer on. And he ought to know how powerful his symbols are before using them or else, you know, he could have a sort of, toxic effect on the viewer if he's not careful and, and it also made me realize um that there's this such thing as visual terrorism and if you don't I didn't ask to see like not with Aronofsky but you know in some very explicit movies I didn't ask to see that image and now it's burned into my brain but to go back to Aronofsky I then saw the fountain and I was like blown away and I thought wow this is an incredibly deep and esoteric director that actually does know what he was doing. So it made me go back to Black Swan and it made me realize, okay, Daisy, I probably have an incredible um, attachment to uh, this Natalie Portman's character and this need for perfection and I can relate to it. And that's why it got under my skin. And I, I had this beautiful growth where I, first I had to eat crow and I had to say, okay, I was wrong. Aronofsky totally knows what he's doing and he's brilliant. And my intense reaction was because I, it affected me so much. And that was his um, mechanism for making me reflect. And I'm glad that I came to that. I was able to, to get to that point of self-reflection and realize that I was disturbed because it was so close to home. But it, it did make me really, um, I still, I, everything that I sort of um, 
this manifesto I created in my mind of what a director ought to do, I still feel. I actually just think Aronofsky is a brilliant director. But you can apply it to a lot of directors. A lot of directors, especially those that are getting a lot of money to make films, I, I just think they have such a responsibility and an obligation to really be careful of the images that they show people. Because if you make a film and you're not um, being sensitive to the overall effect uh, it has in the long run and, and the overall function of, of your images, then you could potentially be creating a lot of like toxic imagery that um, I, I think might not have a good... I don't think that all film is art. Um, I don't think all film, I think it, um, we're looking at a medium that's powerful. When you watch a film, you're bypassing the conscious mind and you're going straight to the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind does not have a judging faculty. If you, I mean, I say this because I, I am an extreme, I love doc, uh, docs. So if you, if anyone likes docs and they watch, um, BBC horizon, they have a lot of docs that, um, that talk about this, but when you um when you're when you're watching something uh, it's all it's in a you're in a frame of mind where you're not um judging things with your conscious mind so you're taking everything as as fact essentially i mean you are realizing it's a film but you're not in every frame in every moment saying this is a movie this is a movie you're suspending disbelief so that's a powerful medium to be working in uh and i just i couldn't i can't stress the importance of, of really taking that seriously and, and making sure that the, the use of violence or the use of nudity or the, I mean, all of it, happy to, you know, definitely can use it, but it, it ought to have a point behind it and not for just the sake of being explicit or the sake of being violent. Because um, I, I think there's nothing, there's nothing worse than that. No, look, I totally, I'm 100% behind you and 100% agree. One of the things that, uh, I've always found very dangerous about cinema in, in terms of as an art form, as you said, it can be toxic is that, you know, if, if I just if you and I just both stare at a picture and there's no artist description and we just look at the, the, the picture, um, whether we like it or not, all of the atmospheric uh, influences around us, our eyesight looking at the image, um, the, the, the smells in the room, the air, the sounds, all of that has influence, but it's not being directed, right? It just happens to be ambient in this just raw environment I'm creating. Whereas when we go to a piece of cinema, you know, if, if the director or the producers or anybody involved, the filmmakers involved have decided to make conscious choices to manipulate you, that's essentially what they're doing. So they're creating an image for you to embrace. They're also creating the sounds and the environment in which they want you to feel this uh, series of events occurring. It is a very, very um, dangerous threshold in which we can see things go in the wrong direction and lead people down the wrong path. Um, I, I certainly would hope that viewers these days were as attentive as you are clearly um, because it, obviously you, you're giving your attention when you sit down and watch a movie. It's clear to me through this conversation, um, not that it was, I mean, it's always been that way, but it's clear through this conversation that you zero in and that's, that's the important, well, but that's my job. And, right. and, and luckily I, I'm so glad that there is the front line of not just a sales agent, but distributors, because it's, it's the, the responsibility of, of distributors and sales agents to either distribute things or to not, because I cannot tell you the number of films that I've watched that I, 
I mean, I absolutely say no to it. And I, I just hope at the, from the very bottom of my heart that no other sales agents take it on and they don't try to sell it to any distributors so that no distributors take it on because luckily there are all these gatekeepers because there are so many films that are made that are incredibly dangerous and toxic and, and are, are either, um, either what they're trying to say or, or the, the things that they're pushing or the, the way that they're manipulating people. I mean, it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's propaganda. It's violent. It's this, it's that it's sexist. It's, I mean, there's so many ways that you can get I mean, as good as cinema can be. It's exactly as, as bad as it can be any, you know, as for as, as powerful as something can be, it can all, it'll always be equal and opposite, um, potential in the other direction. Um, so, so luckily we have this infrastructure in place, uh, and, and these people in place to sort of, to, to, um, either really promote the good ones and, and, and find those gems in the rough or, or cherry pick the, the films that ought to be seen. And then, then it is sometimes an uphill battle to, especially when a film isn't packaged with, um, a stellar package, but it's, it's an amazing film, um, making sure that it, it, it gets the opportunity to see the light of day. And for those films that are made and a lot of, uh, sometimes they do have actors in them, but they just, um, they're dangerous. They're, they're not good films. And I, I try to, to look at these films from an objective point of view. So there are films I look at all the time that I don't like it. I recognize it has an audience. And so, um, you know, I'll usually have somebody else in my office that, that is a fan of this genre. Take a look at it. Um, because if it pleases them, who am I to judge? I'm not trying to only acquire films that, that please my taste, you know? Um, and you know, in that, in that sense, um, just to sort of go on a bit of a tangent, a lot of films that, um, as an acquisitions person, I can say this, it makes me so sad. The number one, um, so family films, um, we, we don't make enough of them. Um, there it's a genre that is, um, so underserved both in America and around the world because we're, we're making action, we're making horror. And, um, because that might be sexier to a director and we're not realizing, Hey guys, um, studio films, you know, they're making like Disney makes two or three massive blockbuster animation films and same with all the rest, but kids are, are watching content all day long. They don't have enough content to watch and we're not providing it. So one area, one genre of film that you don't need big actors for is family films. And, and they're, we don't, we're not making enough of them. Um, so that, that makes me a little bit sad to see. Um, because, you know, I, I, I just, I think the reason for that is because it's not as sexy and everyone wants to make this art film that might not ever make money. When in reality, like if you want to be a director, there are films that need to be made. So I think it's important to, to look at the, uh, underserved areas of content and, and start serving them. You know, that, that, that if you are any other job, um, you know, if we realize that they're, if you were in medical school and there weren't enough surgeons, then I'm, I'm sure it would, it would be smart to start going in that direction. Um, the same thing applies for film. You know, there are genres and there are genres that are so oversaturated and there are genres where we're not, we're not making enough of. So, um, that's, that's a really important area to also keep in mind. Well, I, look, I, I, that's another one I agree with you on is just, um, after convergence, I did a, a, a family, it was originally rated R script and I took all the rated R content out and attempted to make a little more of a, um, a callback to what I used to love about, uh, comedy, which was not, um, offensive, 
uh, sort of aggressive comedy, but which was more based on the actors and their ability to time out jokes and improv and, and make it kind of silly. Is this the Sasquatch? Yeah, it's the Sasquatch one. Wait, how, what's, well, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) So I went to a different direction because I wanted to step away from, and, and basically we got it to what would be TVPG. Like there might be a a curse word in it, but we bleeped it and we put them in there bleeped on purpose and kind of played that game. I'm a hundred percent behind you. It kind of, it kind of sets up something. And and I don't mean this, I'm using a poor segue and you can, you can slap me later, but it does set up a very interesting point in some ways there's obviously a uh, deficit in that sort of genre. There's also uh, another deficit. Uh, obviously we've seen it. It got it brought up at the Oscars and we don't have to go into a whole big a diversity thing because we all identify it's an issue. But one of the ones that I was curious if you would comment on is um, women's role in filmmaking because it's- yeah, yeah, I was just about to jump on that. <laughs> I, I am so mad. I'm so annoyed that everyone's bringing it to race. Yes, there's an issue there and let's not ignore that. And, but guys, come on, like, you don't hear really women complaining about it as much, but it's massively offensive. Like one thing I'll say, Alicia, uh, Alicia Vikander in um, The Danish Girl, she was the most amazing thing about that film. She made it amazing. The fact that she was nominated for Best Supporting when like she, in my mind, she was obviously, uh, should have been considered for for Best Actress. Uh, But even that, that film in itself, if you just look at it as an example of how, women are sort of snubbed. I mean, that's a film about a man trying to become a woman. And the way I took it, and I've spoken to a lot of women about this, it was so sexist. It was just, everything was about this man. And I'm not saying I actually really, I have many transgender friends and, and I am so about that cause, but I just think, um, the whole gender inequality, especially in film, is so massive. I mean, there were no women directors up there there are so few women directors overall, it, it makes me so sad. And I, I, it bothers me that we're always talking about race and that always takes the front line in terms of the, the real controversy. But I think truly the real, the real controversy is, is the female aspect. And the female aspect, it really um, bleeds into all areas of film. I mean, I remember about three years ago, someone telling me that there were only two female uh, cinematographers in the Cinematographers Guild. And, and that used to be the case because um, the equipment was very heavy, but now it's not. And so that's like such a shockingly sad reality. But just across the board, uh, I think women are often snubbed, but... Um, it's just really a reflection of, of, I think, our patriarchal society at large. Um, but I, I definitely think that um, the lack of, of women in the Oscars reflects the lack of women in the filmmaking community at large. And I really, I really hope that changes. Look, I, I, yeah, and I'm with you. One of the things that I, I'm not a huge fan of the film Mad Max. I'm not a massive fan of the film. Oh. I loved it. Well, I'm sure because I, of the feminine thing. I'm sure. I'm sure. My my issue um, is completely different. It's just a thing. I admired uh, George tremendously. I wish I could call him George, like first name, but uh, George yeah. Miller tremendously. But the big thing that I got excited about um, at the Oscars was you have a movie that I see is kind of like a punk rock movie. Uh, you know, it's totally. it's not status quo, even though it was studio funded. It's still not necessarily what I would ever consider to be an Oscar running film. Um, Right. But then the editor won and she, you know, the fact that 
look, and I'll be honest, I was sitting next to my wife, who's a costume designer, and I turned to her and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that, that a female cut that. And, and that's my own, you can, you can, again, hit me through the phone, but I was celebrating the fact that I just had my entire, whether I realize it or not, that's me taking a moment to realize that I was being sexist in my own mind because a, a woman had cut a movie that was one of the best cut films I've seen all year or yeah. all last year. I was I was excited. Hey, I'm surprised a, a male director directed it because um, that takes an incredible amount of internal evolution or sort of it, it takes someone that is very conscious of their what Jung called um, anima and animus. So uh, Carl Jung believed that every man had a little female inside him and every female had a little man inside him. And for, for Miller to, to make a film that is so for men, I mean, the, clearly the target demographic there is male, and then to, to infuse it with just these underlying themes of uh, almost like male um, animalistic qualities juxtaposed with these almost heavenly female creatures that are, what, what I think he did so well is he juxtaposed this um, violence and very, what I do consider to be uh, a male characteristics of, of, um, just more of a violent animal like nature with a feminine nature that is so um, uh, cultivated around uh, nurturing and nature and um, you know that 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 feminine uh, quality of of motherhood and um, and I, when I when I say masculine I, I maybe I should use the word masculine and feminine because I think it's just as important for every man to have a feminine side and every woman to have a, a masculine side so to me it was such a beautiful blend of masculine and feminine and it, it maybe it went overboard and it's sort of um love of of women but I think that's necessary because we all know that it's not really um a popular uh thing to sort of, uh, do to really, um, point out the sort of, or, or, or idolize or set in a good light, um, that sort of feminine nurturing qualities. So to do it in a film that is so geared towards men and also satisfy the taste of just being like, like the one thing I can say about that film is like, wow, talk about, um, high voltage. Like I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. So, so that was, I just thought that was so cool to, to use that kind of platform to also say something, um, good about, about feminine nature. I thought was like, I, I respected it so much. Uh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. And, and I, and I, I, like I said, I, I, I could go on a we could go on a, a huge debate back and forth on on the attributes of that, which I think is good. That's what it should do. A good right, pe- but to do it in a film for women, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been as meaningful. No, it wouldn't have worked. It actually wouldn't have worked at all because you wouldn't have you wouldn't have suckered the misogynist into the room. Right, and, right, right. And women, they know this. You know, I, mean, I wouldn't right. be saying anything new to them. Right. It's not us that need to hear it. Right. Is exactly right. So I, I'm shifting gears because I can't find yeah, a better segue. Um is let's talk about a, a while back I, I came across a video and saw some technology and and again I'm sure there's all kinds of nice little NDAs involved and whatnot but can we talk about Babylon for a moment like we can it's we one can. of the coolest so things ever yeah so it's Babylon like Tower of Babel on um and basically uh there's a, a story behind it so my parents were at Cannes about 10 years ago, and they realized that um, the language component is a, it's a really nasty barrier to that everyone in the film industry 
um, has to has to overcome, um, which is the truth that it, you know if you have a film um, and you want to sell it in Germany, it needs to be dubbed into German. Now, if you look at dubbing, the whole entire industry, it hasn't changed since the beginning of cinema. It is one of the only areas of film that has not had any technological advancements to it. Seriously, literally doing it the same way that we've done since the early 1900s. Wow. So they hired a bunch of amazing technologists that had many patents under their belt to to create a, a um, technology to solve this issue. Now, they uh, got the like a, an amazing patent back then, um, and the technologists did a lot of work. But uh, on the visual side, it needed to sort of um, be advanced. There were a lot of advancements that, that uh, needed to be made. So cut to, to 10 years later, um, right now, um, I sort of came across Babylon. And I, I looked at all at our patent and realized that Samsung, Apple, IBM, they were all citing our patent. Um, so I was like, hey, maybe there's something here. I haven't, I realized I haven't explained what Babylon does. Basically, Babylon is a hardware, software technology that can capture a person's unique vocal fingerprint. So uh, your voice is totally unique to you. Nobody um, has your vocal cords or uses them like you do. So what Babylon does is it... It captures the the various um, elements that that make up your speech, both uh, the inside of your throat, how fast your glottal tick is ticking, how your tongue is moving. Also on the visual side, how your mouth is moving. You know how how round your mouth is when you say "ooh." All of these elements, and and we capture it um, without microphones. Um, we we capture it using very um, proprietary technology that we share exclusively with the government, um, and and then we basically uh, are able to. Because we have all this raw and very rich data, we can then translate your speech into another language. So it's your voice, your rhythm, your timbre, your emotional intent, all of that speaking German, speaking French, um, speaking Spanish with with uh, lips in, in sync. So uh, it's it acts almost like a process of post-production at first, um, whereby... You know, we uh, we take a video game, for instance, or or an animated piece, or music. So those are our low hanging fruits, um, and we we just need to capture all of the the principal actors. We need to capture what we call their blip, their Babylon language information profile, which will take twenty minutes, um, and then we are able to apply this process um, almost like it's a mixture of motion capture and sound mixing. And we're able to uh, resynthesize their speech into a new language, and we're able to retain their emotional intent and their their original performance because that's really what's what's most important. So if you look at um, meaning and communication, seven percent comes from the words itself. Like I could say, Drew, what are you doing? Or like, Drew, what are you doing? You know, it's not what I'm saying; it's it's how I'm saying it. That's that's where me the meaning lies. And so when we throw things to a translator, um, all of the meaning is lost. Um, or Siri, for example. Siri sounds like Siri for a reason. And um, as far as I can see, uh, with all of the, the research I've done and the, the technical know-how I have in this very specific field, I can't imagine that they will be able to recreate a voice for Siri that sounds realistic because they don't have enough data. The, the way that they're capturing the data is not, um, is not the same. But anyways, back to film. So um, Babylon, in terms of film, which um, film will be the, the low-hanging fruits and primarily because of the visual component, um, 
the system has been designed to be an intelligent system that learns with the more data you've, uh, you give it. So we're, we're, um, one of our partners is NASA Ames, their robotic division. Um, a lot of their, uh, one of their senior scientists sits on our advisory board and, and we've done a lot of think tanks with them. Um, and it's because of this, this learning computer that we, uh, that we have it, um, that's a part of it so that the more data we give it, the more, um, automated the process can become, especially on the visual side, so that we can then uh, begin to apply it to film. So um, animation is a no-brainer because the, the visuals, it's a lot easier to do that. Uh, and But eventually, within a year to two years, it'll, it'll uh, be able to be applied to film in a very economical way, um, not to mention the aspect that we can now finally preserve an original performance, but still allow a film to travel. So I think one of the, I mean, it's one of the biggest things facing, um, fa biggest issues facing film and global distribution of film is language. I mean, we absolutely have the capacity to press a button and a film can go out in every single territory simultaneously. The studios, they do that. They, they, they have um, distribution set up around the world. Um, and indies, indies have to work on a different, um, a sort of sales model because they can't afford to market a film in every, uh, territory or dub a film into every language. So they have to rely on, on local distributors. But, um, as an independent distributor or, you know, independent sales agent and now distributor, we, we are now up on Amazon worldwide. So we could, let's say, let's say we're unable to sell convergence in Thailand, which I think is not true because I think we have already sold it there or, or, um, Myanmar or Borneo, but Hey, there might be tons of people in Borneo that want to see convergence. We could absolutely right now put it up on Amazon, um, and click the, Borneo button, but it's, and I shouldn't have used Borneo because I don't even know what, I'll, uh, <laughs> I don't even know what language they speak it's there, okay. which is, is horrible. Yeah, it's all right. Um, but, um, you know, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of an obscure country now that I do know the language they speak, but let's just say France, which is also not true because we've sold France, but, um, I think we have, but so let's say that, that we really want it to do well in the French market. We could get it out there. Um, you know, we could put it on VOD ourselves, not even just online, um, but it, it wouldn't be in French. So the likelihood of it doing well in that market uh, is not high. Uh, with Babylon, it really allows content to be globalized. Uh, the process of globalization um, suddenly becomes um, overnight and massively easier. But what I'm truly more excited about is the ability to retain the original performance because I, for one, can't stand dubbing. I'm, I do subtitles because that's all that I have, but I, I obviously like to hear the actor's original uh, performance, which is, to me, the most important part. Um, countries around the world, they are they're okay with dubbing because they've it's all they've had, you know, ever. So, so um, you know, everything is dubbed in Germany. Everything is dubbed in, in most um, foreign countries. But yeah, so that that's... So it's it's literally, exciting. like to me, because that, this is why mm -hmm. I brought it up, is is obviously it, it's pretty clear it's a game changer. And it's not just for the sales side. We're now talking about um, for that artistic moment, that craftsmanship moment, that an actor has put in a performance that uh, a screenwriter put on the page that the director kind of... Uh, pulled together and and you're now basically changing the entire identity of film 
just by being able to keep that performance intact. I've heard, I watched the, uh, and again, I like to, to pick on my own stuff cause it's easy and it's legally okay. Um, you know, like I watched the dub trailer of, uh, they call it the sick room. Yeah. Yeah. The sick room. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. It's called That's the sick funny. room. And so watching that, you know, fine. What it, it's funny. I sent it to the, to, to the composer who's German and he, he was like, no, this is great. But you know, to me, it, it, it's going to pull me out because I'm familiar with it, but over there, they don't know the difference. But if suddenly I could, I could get Klain's performance to come across to them with the subtleties that he pulled in, um, under my direction and, and under his natural talent, then suddenly we have a whole different beast. So I think it's brilliant. And I think it's a testament. Yeah. Did you see the, the promo video we did for it? I don't, uh, yeah, maybe that's what the, the babble thing. That's what I saw. Yeah. 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 So Anyone that's interested, I'll put it in the show Babylon. notes. Or, yeah. Or yeah. Oh, cool. No, give the plug. Just Babylon.net. Babylon.net. It's just Babylon.net. Yeah, but show notes are cool, whichever. I'll put it in show uh, notes so they can see it. I have one more question for you, if I could, unless you yeah, have something. Yeah, no, please. Do you need to go? If you need to go. No, no, okay. no. I'm good. Okay, so with the amount of stuff you do, because obviously, as a as in in your line of work, not including all of the insane research, clearly you've done for for Babylon. But aside from that. You travel a ton. You're always gone. I'm sure you go to all the festival or the um, the various sales markets. What is it for you? Because most people would say their way of relaxing is to sit down and watch a movie. And obviously you do that and your active brain has to kick in at some point. What? It's so funny. What do you do? Uh-huh. What is your- so it's funny because I, I have to, I, I'm unable to watch a film like normal people because I, I can't just zone out. I'm looking at the lighting. I'm looking at, well, my, all of my good friends and, and, um, are so, get so annoyed. They will not watch things with me because I am so like, I'm insanely excellent at predicting every plot twist and every next scene or he's going to die within five minutes or yep, they're going to get married or oops, he's going <laughs> to cheat on her in 10 minutes. Like I know because I know the beats so well. And so it's hard for me to just be like a normal consumer that just like, you know, we're a normal viewer that can just zone out and watch. I mean, definitely I, I can. Um, uh, but it's, I, I guess I actually can never turn on that analytical component when watching a film. It's just too, part of my, um, makeup now. Um, so what do I do to relax? Um, I love docs, like I said before, but I, 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 I've, um, we get, we've gotten a lot more into, um, buying and selling docs as well. So that still qualifies as work. Um, I, uh, I meditate and I, um, am a, what I call a scientifically spiritual person. So, um, that definitely is how I chill out. Um, I think it's it's important to. I'm always in my in a beta brainwave state usually for the majority of the day, so it's really nice to sort of um, turn off my brain. I'll do more like active meditations, but um, <laughs> I'm just making myself sound like a loser right now. No, but, it's, uh, it's good. Yeah, it's so real. I'll it's do real. That, try to be active. I also. Um, any, my social life is also intricately linked with my work life because part of my job is also going out and taking drinks with producers and going to parties and networking. And so, um, yeah, there's not too much separation, I would say. <laughs> it's just a fact of my life. But it's not, that's not necessarily a bad thing in terms of if you love what you do, which I'm assuming yeah, you do, you're, it, you're still exactly. doing it. Right. So what about painting? You mentioned that you do pastels and I know they're only for you, but I mean, do you, is that something else that? Yeah, I, I, what I, I like to draw mandalas or just, yeah, it's, it's totally something 
I like to do for me, that is where I zone out, actually. That's exactly what I'll do. It's all, it's all pastel, weird, intricate mandala designs. <laughs> hey, look, whatever. Look, I watch, and I, I've, I've mentioned it on the podcast, I get made fun of. The only thing that I can sit down and watch where my brain does not go into uh, the same analytical state is wrestling. I watch... Co- no way, that's funny. I watch copious amounts of of wrestling because it's it's the only, I don't care about it. I don't care about anything in it. I just enjoy the fact that it's on TV and it's, you know, cause sports, even sports sometimes have to be careful because, you know, legitimate sports out and even the, the physical side of wrestling is very legit, but the stories obviously aren't, but the, um, you know, football, I, I can't, I, I get too wound up and then I can't sleep. And, you know, it just like football season this year for Alabama was crazy. And so it was just one of those things for me. So, I get right. it. I watch UK comedies like IT Crowd and Peep Show. Oh, sure. That yeah, that's my I love I just fall into such a zone. I also do karaoke. That's that's another all right. way to blow so, up Steve. All right, so style. so do you have so a lot of people have pre-built karaoke jams, right? Like people oh, yeah. what's your specialty? What's your jam? What's the one song? Oh, I have a very limited range. I'm pretty much like the Amy Winehouse, Macy Gray, Nelly Furtado, Sam Cooke. Those are my go-tos. <laughs> and it's funny. So I'm going to Brussels um, for a, a festival. There's this market component to a festival. Um, it's usually at Fantasia Festival in Montreal over the summer. Yep. Um, there's this market component called Frontiers, which is like so cool. I love those guys so much. So they're flying me out to Brussels. And I basically uh, get pitched like 10 of the most awesome projects that they've sort of um, picked which ones are the best. And I really trust their taste and they're at various stages of development and packaging and and all that. Um, But so at every market, at every festival that uh, Frontiers and Fantasia are a part of, they host a karaoke night. So it's actually the reason I do karaoke is like mainly because I know that I'm always going to have to go to these karaoke parties as a part of business. And I have to constantly have new material. So now I have to go to my like corner dive bar to like practice songs on these old men to see if they like it so I can take new material to Brussels. Yeah. Do, now do it's you, a point of, of constant anxiety in my life. Do you do you actually now now and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but do you have you found that like if you survey the room, do you have a playlist like you survey the room, it's mostly um uh men in their in their thirties or forties. Do you know like do you pick a track that has I mean, cause you know you, you have a nice voice. Do you pick a track that kind of plays up that sort of uh, that? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I have to do, because if I if I do a song that goes high, I, I'm not a singer by trade. <laughs> I cannot sing high. My voice cracks. I get incredibly scared and embarrassed. And thus everyone in the room just suddenly feels really bad for me. <laughs> so it's like a it's just a vicious cycle downwards. So I need to I need to pick a, a smoky tune. Um, and then I'm I'm actually not bad. No, it's good. So it's good. Sports Harbor Thursday nights, Marina Del Rey. Boom! There it is. Curious. There it is. The shameless plug. Go see Daisy perform uh, one of seven songs. Is it more than seven? Yes. yes. Well, um, yeah, because I am all the time discovering. Oh right. Like my new track for Brussels is going to be "What's Up" by Aha. Oh, nice. Pre- pretty good hold on that one. <laughs> That's amazing. Good for you. I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah. 
Okay, so I mean that's that's I'd love to bring you back on. Maybe maybe just like at yeah, some early. point down the road, just have a conversation where we we maybe we can come up with a gimmick where we get a couple of like log lines or pitches from from listeners. Ooh, yeah. Also, I love debating. So if you ever want to do like a round table. Oh yeah, we'll do that next time I'm in L.A. I'll actually get some people together and we should just I'll bring all the gear. We'll set up the mics and we just have at it and see what happens because I think that would be fascinating. Oh, yeah. Totally. All right. Well, that's cool. perfect. Cool. Well, this was super fun. Well, yeah, it was good. And thank you very much. Thanks for having and me. And there was Daisy. So again, thanks for uh, listening. Uh, you know, we always like feedback. If you have a chance, just shoot us an email or uh, anything, really. So the email address is uh, betweenthelinepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at podcastbtl. You can find us on um, Facebook, uh, Between the Line Podcast. Uh, obviously, we're on iTunes. We're now on Google Play. If you if you don't mind just jumping out, giving us a little bit of love, giving us some notes. Uh, we like notes. Notes are good. Feel free to shoot us uh, any kind of information or throw us a nice review and give us a high five. Uh, and if you see us around at various uh, places, uh, let us buy you a cup of coffee maybe. We'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll grab you for an interview. So thanks for listening. And next week, uh, hopefully Horst is back and or I get another guest host. Maybe we'll have a, a guest guest host guest 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 whatever you get the point so i'm gonna roll out until then stay frosty stay sharp cut thank you for listening to the mobcast network